AMU. American Military University is proud to present Protect and Secure. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We are very fortunate because we've got a very special guest that is an expert in international relations and counterterrorism. Today, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mahmoud Senjis. Welcome. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for inviting me. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our, our guest today. Dr. Senjis is an associate professor and research faculty member with the Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Dr. Senjis has international field experience where he's delivered training and assistance with international partners in the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. He's been involved with research projects from the Brookings Institute, European Union, and various U.S. agencies. Dr. Senjis holds two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees from Turkey and the United States. His Turkish graduate degrees are in sociology, is a master's degree from the School of International Service program from American University, and a PhD from the School of Public Policy program at George Mason University. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, international security, Turkey-U.S. relations, Middle Eastern politics, American security policy, the Syrian conflict and refugees, as well as transnational crime. So as you can see, our guest today has a tremendous amount of, of background, and I'm excited to hear what he has to share with us in terms of what's going on in Afghanistan and in the Middle East right now. So as we begin, speaking of the Taliban, can you share with us, sir, who is the Taliban? To understand the Taliban, uh, you need to know what happened in Afghanistan in the 1980s. In 1989, the Soviets pulled out, and then the, the next few years, the next few years, were pretty chaotic in the country. By 1992, there was a full-blown civil war with tribal leaders fighting for power in the country. Two years later, a militia called the Taliban started getting attention, and many of its members had studied in conservative religious schools in Afghanistan and across the border in Pakistan, and some of them had also fought as Mujahideen. And they had their own plans for the country, and one of its leaders in those years was saying that we want to go to Kabul and announce an Islamic government there. The people were so frustrated with this lawlessness and that the Taliban came marching along from Kandahar to city to city, saying, we are going to make cities safe for you again. By 1996, the Taliban had seized the capital. They declared Afghanistan an Islamic Emirate and started imposing their own strict interpretation of Islamic law. They were like, you cannot watch movies, you cannot listen to music, women cannot go to school and other than doctors, they can go to work. You have to wear a certain type of clothes, you have to have a certain kind of beard. It just became more and more restrictive in the country. Then 9-11 uh, happened in 2001. Then the U.S. was after Al-Qaeda's leader, Osama bin Laden, who was hiding out in Afghanistan with the Taliban's help. The Taliban said they wanted proof he was behind the attack, but when they refused to hand him over immediately, the Americans invaded and President Bush in those years was seeing that the Taliban will pay a, a big price, which we have seen this 20-year war. Maybe it is the longest war for the U.S. Within a couple of months, the Taliban were forced out of power and Afghanistan got a new interim government. Three years later, it got a new constitution and Hamid Karzai was elected president. 
While that was going on, the, the Taliban had regrouped. They wanted foreigners out and they wanted back in. What follows were years of devastating, devastating conflict and it is still going on. More than 40,000 Afghan civilians killed in this 20-year period of war and at least 64 Afghan military and the police and the more than 3,500 international soldiers and most of them are Americans lost their lives in this war. The U.S. has alone spent almost a trillion dollars on the war and the reconstruction projects. And after all that, Afghanistan is still deeply unstable and one of the poorest countries, I think the GDP per capita is around $500, which is even one-third of another poor country, Haiti, in the world. And also it's one of the most corrupt states, according to the Corruption Perception Index, and Afghanistan has been placed uh, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. I think also yesterday, uh, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime published their Organized Crime Index, and uh, we have seen that Afghanistan is the seventh country with the most crimes. So in terms of the turmoil that's going on there, in addition to the Taliban, who is ISIS-K, the Haqqani Network, and the Pakistani TTP? In Afghanistan, terrorism databases have recorded several active groups. And one of them is Taliban. And in the terrorism databases, in the last several years, Taliban is the first group with the most terrorist incidents. And also, uh, Afghanistan recorded other active groups, and one of them is ISIS-K, ISIS-Horasan, also, which was the perpetrator of the recent deadly attack in Kabul last month, killing 170 civilians and also 13 U.S. Uh, service members. ISIS-K announced the group's formation in 2015 and appointed former Tariq Taliban Pakistani militant Hafiz Khan as its uh, leader. ISIS-K also recruited defectors from the Taliban, and this resulted in a fight with Taliban. And uh, in those years also, we have seen jihadist groups from different parts of the world pledging allegiance or declaring loyalty to ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And in, in 2014 and in 2015, in its peak, when uh, the ISIS was the most popular group, we saw that also uh, in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, this group was uh, pledging allegiance to ISIS. And similar to that, in those years, is the, is the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan pledged allegiance to ISIS-K and declared that they were the members of Laya Khorasan, which is ISIS's uh, franchise. And the ISIS-K and the Taliban, I can say that they are not good friends. So terrorism databases are recording some clashes between ISIS-K and the Taliban. And the ISIS-K sees the Taliban as an irreconcilable enemy that needs to be militarily defeated. The enmity between the two groups has been aggravated by uh, sustained military hostilities, but the main cause remains their sectarian difference, which ISIS-K subscribes to the jihadist Salafism ideology. I can talk about these clashes, which I mentioned before. I think it's similar to these clashes in the region, ISIS-K also was the perpetrator of more than 3,000 uh, casualties. So ISIS-K has been listed as one of the most deadliest organizations. And by the way, maybe it's better to emphasize here another maybe table about the terrorist organizations with the most casualties. And then this table recorded uh, four out of 10 groups. They were all ISIS franchises, and one of them was I ISIS-K. We know that ISIS and the Taliban, uh, they had a clashes for territorial fight in Kunar. But interestingly, both groups were fighting uh, not only for ideology, but also for illegal logging, for generating revenue in Kunar 
province in uh, in Afghanistan. How about the goals for ISIS-K? The group intended to topple the Pakistani government, punished Iranian government for being a vanguard of Shias like the Hazaras. Interestingly, in Afghanistan and the Pakistan, we have seen that this Shia community have been especially targeted by, by ISIS-K. So it seems that in the future, we will hear more about ISIS because this group uh, has a great capacity in the region. Just let me give you also some, some numbers uh, showing us the group's capacity. This year in 2021, the group had already launched 77 attacks and then in the first four months of 2021, an increase from 21 in the same period last year. This renewed capacity for mass casualty attacks and could further destabilize Afghanistan's already precarious security situation. Another information about its capacity, ISIS-K appears to target Afghans who work with the U.S. government and others in the international community. This was the evident in the August 26 suicide bombing at the Kabul airport, which killed, as I said, 170 civilians and 30 U.S. soldiers. And also there are indicators that the group has plotted some international attacks from Afghanistan. And that since 2018, the United Nations has reported the detection of plots in Europe traceable to ISIS-K. For example, last year, the German government charged for Tajik nationals for a plot to attack uh, U.S. and the NATO military facilities. The, the German government notes that these individuals were in contact with senior Islamic State leaders, including an ISIS-K leader in Afghanistan. There is one more interesting information about the group. And the ISIS-K's regional and the transnational terrorism ambitions are also concerning. The group has a cadre of foreign fighters from South Asia, the Middle East, and the powers of Europe. Additionally, ISIS-K appears to work closely with the Al-Sadiq's office. This is ISIS's note for regional operations that is based in Afghanistan. So as a result, I can say that ISIS-K uh, seems to be one of the most active group in the future. Then, and uh, also we will be hearing some attacks of ISIS-K in the region, especially not only targeting the region, but also the Western world. Which reflects the threat that they pose both in Afghanistan as well as in the international community. What do you see as a threat with ISIS-K in terms of the United States? ISIS-K, looking at uh, some incidents, some attacks or some plots in, in Europe since 2018, as I mentioned before, the German government did some investigations about these four Tajik nationals. And also we know that uh, like ISIS or other Al-Qaeda groups, AKAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the Al-Qaeda franchise group also has targeted the U.S. before and has made some attempts before targeting the U.S. It wouldn't be surprising to see in this group's agenda that they are targeting the Western world and also especially the United States. And maybe another maybe important point here, these groups are aware of what makes them popular because we have seen that any target, any attack, the Western world, especially the U.S., is making these groups popular. Then thanks to this popularity, they can have more recruits and also they can have more maybe financial resources. Uh, I think the U.S. needs to, according to me, give its attention on, on ISIS-K because after the Kabul attack, we have seen the group's capacity and also after some investigations in Europe, now we are well aware of what group is capable of doing attacks, uh, not only in the region, as I said, but also targeting the U.S. That's important information for people to know. Who has sponsored the Taliban in that region? That's a great question because we know that these groups are resilient and the 
there are they have some financial resources and also there are some states backing and sponsoring uh, these organizations in the in the region or in different parts of the world. When we look at U.S. State Department list of states sponsoring terrorism, you can only you can only see three or four countries: Iraq, Syria in the in the past years, I think North Korea and Syria and uh, some others. But we know well that there are some groups, also some states behind these groups in the region. And uh, there are some accusations about uh, Pakistan and also about Iran in the region, targeting or sponsoring this, these groups uh, in the region. And also we know well that when Taliban was ruler in uh, 2001, uh, Saudi Arabia, United, United Arab Emirates and Pakistan were the only three countries officially recognized the Taliban when the Taliban was the ruler. But uh, after the Taliban took over Kabul and the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan declared that uh, the Taliban were breaking the chains of slavery. And also we know that there are some long-standing and the overlapping reasons why Pakistan maybe is behind a uh, Taliban. We need to talk about, for example, first, the Pakistan has vested ideological interest in the Taliban. And the Pakistan is more interested in Balochistan and the Khyber Pakhtunwa regions, which have large Pashtun or Pashtun-speaking populations. And the, in these regions, uh, Pakistan established madrasas uh, and to emphasize and to teach a particularly strict brand of Islam in the hopes that Islamic nationalism would suppress Pashtun nationalism. And maybe second reason in this context would be Pakistan officials worry about the border with, with Afghanistan and believe that a Taliban government could ease their concerns. Since 1947, uh, Afghan governments have rejected the uh, Durand line, which separates Pakistan and Pashtun-dominated territories from Afghanistan. And the third one here would be, it's imperative for Pakistan to have a Pakistani-friendly government established in, in Afghanistan. So we were knowing well that the Ghani government had uh, very close uh, relations uh, with India government, which Pakistan found it very, very concerning. And that's why, because of the regional interest of Pakistan, maybe we have seen these accusations, especially sponsoring and providing some logistics to, to the organization. Of course, always uh, there is a second country very active in the region, which is Iran. And uh, it is really complicated, maybe, to speak about Iran, because sometimes you may give the sense of conspiracy theories, but it wouldn't be wrong to speak about the uh, Iran's very influential relations in, in the conflict zones, also maybe in the, in the Middle East, and also in, in Taliban, also uh, Taliban in Afghanistan uh, as well. We know that not only Taliban or ISIS-K has some relations with, with uh, Iranian officials, and also Iran is uh, hosting today uh, Al-Qaeda's number two guy. And then also uh, we know that Iran is more concerned, as I mentioned before, ISIS-K is especially targeting this Hazara, this Shia community. That's why Iran is actively involved in internal affairs of Afghanistan. And also Iran is uh, using this strategy, which is my enemies, uh, enemies, my friend. So wherever there are U.S. interests, we, we have seen the active Iranian involvement uh, just to giving its support to any group or any organizations which U.S. forces are, are fighting. It's amazing to me how much is going on out in the, the world that a lot of U.S. citizens aren't aware of. And this is certainly information that the people should be aware of. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. 
In the military, I was part of a unit that had my six. When someone has your back, you feel confident and prepared. As students of American Military University, over 60,000 veterans and active military know how important that is. With a dedicated veteran enrollment team to help me move forward with purpose, providing the right structure to ensure I gain career-relevant industry skills so I can focus on what's ahead. Now, I'm moving with authority in this next mission without looking back because American Military University has got my six. Get started today. Go to amuonline.com slash veterans. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Zengis, talking about a lot of important issues that are going on in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as we talk about Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, what, sir, would you say is the Taliban's capacity? The Taliban is, is a, a very well-organized group in United States, Department of State, Statistical Annex Report. Taliban is listed in the last years as the top organization with the most incidence attacks and with the most casualties. And we know that Taliban had already set up a parallel state with leader and under it local officials in charge of everyday practices. And also Taliban had its own, own courts because justice has been a really big, very big issue in, in the country. And then the courts were very popular because, as I said, justice has been a huge gap and the, where the state courts have failed. These Sharia courts are able to come into communities who may even be reticent to support the Taliban, but they offer justice. And the Taliban today is 85,000 full-time fighters and training camps across the country. And the Taliban had a strong presence in almost all states in the country. I think terrorism databases uh, have recorded the Taliban attacks. There are 34 provinces. I think in 2019, Taliban had the capacity of doing these attacks in 33 out of 34 provinces in in Afghanistan. When it comes to its uh, financial maybe revenues and uh, Taliban's money, it's again one of the wealthier organizations in the world. And uh, for example, according to United Nations Committee, Taliban make close to 1.5 billion a year. They have always made a lot of money from growing opium puppies and the drug trade, but they have found more ways to generate income. Last year, they made, for example, around 500 millions from mining and trading minerals and even producing methamphetamine. They also have their own tax collection system and receive funding from abroad, all those suspected sources which, which we spoke about, like Pakistan and Iran, but they deny it. When we look at, for example, the last 10 years, uh, terrorist attacks and incidents in Afghanistan, I have seen some surges, especially starting from 2012, and then the terrorism databases recorded more than 1,400 terrorist attacks in the country. It was very high in 2015, which it was very close to 2000. And uh, let me give you some other details from State Department INEX report about Afghanistan. And uh, in in 2019, almost 1,800 terrorist attacks happened in Afghanistan. And then the casualty, more than 16,000 people killed or wounded in these attacks in the, in the country. And the Taliban itself was responsible for 83% of incidents, but the ISIS-K was responsible for 3% of all, all incidents as well. I think also there are some interesting details in State Department Statistical Annex report, which is showing us the capacity of this organization. For example, Taliban mostly targeted the government officials and the, the military. Uh, when we look at the victims, uh, the group especially targeted the government. I think uh, I need to repeat here. 
And when we look at uh, this capacity, uh, some details about Afghan uh, Taliban's targets or tactics, and the groups mostly used the shootings and the planted mines, IEDs, and also storming and rapid uh, assault. So these are uh, the tactics and the, which, which are used by especially the most capable organizations. And similar to that, and the group selectively targeted the military and then the government officials. Also, the group, as I said, was really active, but uh, the group's Taliban's attacks uh, happened more in Kunduz and the Balkh region and also Kandahar uh, as well. Now, speaking of the attacks that have occurred, why did the Afghan security forces collapse so quickly? We have seen some criticisms about the resilience and also the capacity of the Afghan government. And U.S., for example, just poured more than 83 billion in, in weapons and equipment and training into the country's security forces over two decades. And uh, of course, former Afghan members, they complained about there was no air support or they had run out of supplies and food. I think also the Taliban strategy worked in the maybe in the field because the group began with the individual outposts in rural areas where storing and the ammunition depleted soldiers and the police units were surrounded by Taliban fighters and the promised safe passage if they surrendered and left behind their uh, equipment. It was slowly giving the insurgents more and more control of roads and then entire districts and positions collapsed. The complaint was all, almost and always the same. Why the security forces collapsed? I think we really need to speak about the corruption because it is not a facilitating factor for crime or money laundering, but also terrorism. And uh, in, the, in the region, as I said, Afghanistan is listed one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And uh, the U.S. and its NATO allies spent billions of dollars over two decades to train and equip Afghan security forces. But uh, the Western-backed government was rife with corruption, and the commanders exaggerated the number of soldiers, which was also called as ghost soldiers in the region, to siphon off resources, and the troops in the field often lacked ammunition, supplies, or even, even food. And maybe also we can say their morale further eroded when it became clear the U.S. was on its way out. As the Taliban repeatedly advanced in recent days, entire units surrendered after brief battles, and the Kabul and some nearby provinces fell without a fight. We all watched it unfold on television, and it, it just was it was horrifying to see the, the 13 sol soldiers or service members that were killed in the, the suicide bomb, and to just see things deteriorate so quickly. It was definitely very disheartening, and it brings up the question, I think, in a lot of our minds are, what implications does this have for the future? And would you be able to speak on future predictions? I think uh, there are there are some lessons for us maybe we need to speak about, because there are some criticisms, for example, about Iraq. Then the criticism was about that the Western world didn't take some lessons from Iraq, because in Iraq, uh, maybe the Western world ignored the role of corruption. And then that's why we have seen this failure maybe in the country. And maybe another maybe important lesson would be in this context. I think the, the Western world needs to take some lessons about how much it is a decent strategy to push some nations in the Middle East or in Asia to transit from authoritarianism to, to democracy. And we have seen that Culture is really a very important element, and then also it is really a very important element in, in Afghanistan uh, as well. And uh, that's why 
maybe uh, we really need to take some lessons from Iraq and also the Afghanistan cases. And also we really need to review our policies, especially in our fight countering terrorism or uh, fighting against these violent groups uh, that threatened not only the regional states also, but about the U.S. But uh, for the future predictions, I think uh, Afghan case is seen is seen as a model for extremists and the terrorist groups in uh, in other regions. A few days after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, a convoy of, for example, militants drove through the city of Idlib in northwestern Syria, and also they were doing some celebrations. And also we have seen. Uh, in some some other regions, some celebrations, they they began to believe that they can get they get some uh, victory uh, victories if they have the Taliban's maybe model, like being resilient and also using this more war tactics against the government. Of course, maybe in other future predictions, uh, we were talking about more does terrorism work? Because after 9/11, we haven't seen any group being successful, but uh, except for Taliban ultimately aimed its goal. Now, there is a discussion in the world about how much terrorism works. Also, there are some predictions about how much this case can serve or inspire other groups, as I said, other extremist groups, maybe in, in the regions they are operating. And also a perception of Islam, because uh, we have seen it's a big problem in, in European countries, Islamophobia or uh, xenophobia. And the uh, also, we know well that ISIS and Al-Qaeda, their brutality, their violence, their beheadings, and those other jihadist terrorist organizations have really shaped the perception of the Western world. But now, today, we have seen that how Taliban is exploiting Islam and its strict interpretation of Sharia law, and also doing this uh, so-called uh, maybe religious practices in the country. I think uh, maybe we can say that in the future, there might be again some biases, some prejudices, again, how Islam is having these closed linkages with terrorism or violence, which it is not true. It is more the issue of the matter of how Islam has been exploited and the, by these groups, and also how these groups are really using the strict interpretation of maybe Islam in the region. And also maybe another one, uh, we are really wondering about the Taliban's keeping its promise because the Taliban have sought to present themselves as a more moderate force in recent years. And since taking over, they promised to respect women's rights, forgive those who fought against them and uh, prevent Afghanistan from being used as a base for terror attacks. But uh, many Afghans are skeptical of those promises. And also another future prediction would be about the Al-Qaeda's presence in, in the region, because we know that ISIS, ISIS and Al-Qaeda has is competing with each other to be the like the caliph, like the leader of the Islamic world. That's why both groups have some franchises in different parts of the world. And we are much concerned about the Haqqani network. It's another, I think, active group in, in Afghanistan, which they mostly operated in, in Kabul, in the capital. But of course, we know well that there is a very strong linkage with the, with the Haqqani group and also with uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. I think also looking at the current Afghan government, because as I said in the beginning of my talk, there are three active groups, Haqqani Network, ISIS Khorasan, this ISIS franchise, and the Taliban. Interestingly, we have seen that except for ISIS-K, Haqqani Network and also Taliban, now they have some representations in the government. 
Interestingly, Sirajuddin Haqqani, the leader of this Haqqani group now, is the Minister of Interior. I don't believe that we will see some effective cooperation about terrorism issues when we are seeing the leader of Haqqani network as the Minister of Interior in the country. And looking at this government in Afghanistan, I can say that the future doesn't seem to be promising. I am not much hopeful about Taliban and also about the future of Afghan people in the uh, in the region. It definitely is, is eye-opening what's going on in, in the Middle East. Well, Dr. Sunjis, I would like to thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for uh, sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me. And thank you for attending our podcast today and in listening. And we look forward to you joining on our next podcast. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.